I'm Katie. And I'm Bailey. And welcome to Prose Tented Glasses. Today we are going to talk about Six of Crows. Finally. Finally. <laughs> it only took I know, Katie... This is, like, this is the moment Bailey's been waiting for. Seriously. It only took Katie a little while to read the books, but I've been waiting for months since I read them to have someone to talk about this with, so <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah, I am too. Um, I I really enjoyed it. I think it's a really interesting way to expand the universe she'd already started in the first trilogy, and I'm excited to get into it. I, I think that broad overview that I enjoyed Six of Crows much more, we will break down in a in a little while why exactly some of those things are but uh to start with it it's always fun to see things uh come back so we'll do as usual sort of broad level there will be spoilers we are going to talk about all the good and all the bad yeah um, and this will this will also probably dive into spoilers for King of Scars as well. We're going to be talking about Six of Crows, Crooked Kingdom, and probably also some King of Scars. So if you're not fully caught up on the Grishaverse, uh, proceed at your own risk. Right. So the first thing that I'm excited to talk about are all these callbacks to the original trilogy that you see in Six of Crows, because even though it takes place in Ketterdam, which is in the same world, it's two years down the road and things are a little bit different. Uh, mm-hmm. But I love Inezha's blade being the Sancta Al- Alina because mm-hmm. it was so, so cool that that Alina's completely blanking on the word. <laughs> death martyrdom uh, story vibe <laughs> none of those are helpful <laughs> I was extremely excited that the mythos of Alina had carried far enough that now people are naming their blades after her which also naming your blade is something that I'm just here for in every series in any book Name your blade. I'm yeah, here for weapons it. with names are are a good trope, and I like that. And I'm happy that um, Inej named her blade Sancta Alina. I think that was a, a fun choice. I think it's like a little bit disconcerting since we know that Alina didn't die to like watch the world go on as if she had. I think it's really kind of an interesting take on just world building generally. It definitely is interesting to know at the back of your mind that Alina was alive. Though I will say, since I read them out of order, I didn't know <laughs> Alina was alive yeah. when I read Six of Crows. So for me, yeah. it was like, oh, yeah, she's the martyr. Like, they have a blade for her. That's fine. <laughs> did you um, did you know that she was alive from King of Scars, or did you not know until... Oh, um, the end of the trilogy. I didn't know until the end of the trilogy because I read King of Scars oh first. Oh my gosh. So this whole time <laughs> I had been reading Six of Crows, Crooked Kingdom, and King of Scars with the absolute surety that Alina was a martyr to the cause. And she is not. 
So that is wild. It's also hilarious how you read them in like the exact wrong order. (laughs) Oh, I couldn't have read them in a worse order if I tried. (laughs) But I didn't know. I saw King of Scars recommended a lot, not necessarily Uh tied to the other books. And I thought, I'll give it a go. And uh, here we are. I mean, first of all, one point is that this really colors the pre-recorded bit we did where you were telling me that it doesn't really matter the order to read them in, but like this is the order they were published in. Because I feel like now that we know more, it, it kind of matters. Um, and going on off of that, I when I was reading King of Scars, I genuinely don't have any clue how you knew anything that was going on in that book without having read both the Grisha trilogy and the Six of Crows duology. A very strong ability to just sort of go with the flow. There are a lot of fantasy (laughs) books that dump you Mm -hmm. into a world and expect you to catch up as you read. Uh, One big example I can think of this is Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson. There is no gentle introduction Mm -hmm. to the magic system. You jump into a character who is burning tin and pushing and, you know, jumping around in the mist. And as you read, you figure it out. So for me to start this book and sort of be like, I don't really know what's going on. Not that unusual. Just accepted it. Does it feel completely different now that I've read all the other books and see all these connections? Yes, I am a little surprised I didn't find it even weirder to read. But I still enjoyed it enough to go back and read the rest of them, so. Yeah, that's fair. Just a side note, I love the Mistborn trilogy. Um, They're some of my favorite fantasy books. And I really like the magic system in that book. I feel like it's one of the most um, unique and interesting hard magic systems. Also, side note, my cat has chosen right now to be really mad at me for some reason. Hopefully I'll be able to edit most of that out, but... If you that's hear okay, Mario. very angry meow- meowing, yeah, that's my cat, Mario Lemieux, L-E-M-E-W, like the hockey player, but not. I didn't know that. I just thought his name oh, was really? Mario. No, it's Mario Lemieux. Um, he's 17 and he is just the biggest asshole. Yes. I mean, I know I those two too, things buddy. about him. I just didn't know his full <laughs> name was Mario Lemieux. I love it. Uh-huh. Um, yep. Uh, another thing that I was very excited to see in both Six of Crows, well, Crooked Kingdom technically, and King of Scars was was Zoya being back. And I felt like finally Zoya got a slight bit of justice she deserved for being just the side character in the original trilogy. Yeah, uh, in the original trilogy, Zoya was super badass the whole time, but she was also a huge bitch to Alina for most of it. So I feel like I didn't really have that much of an emotional attachment to her in the trilogy. But with that being said, when she showed up in Crooked Kingdom, I was like, oh my God, it's Zoya. I was so excited. And I don't know if that's because I just sort of marinated with how badass she was in, you know, in the two and a half days it took me between reading the end of the trilogy and reading Crooked Kingdom really uh, had a lot of time for reflection there. Or if, I was just so excited to have crossover. You know, people love to push back against like how everyone everything thinks it needs to be the Marvel Cinematic Universe now. But I, I love that shit. I love inter- interconnected universes. It just it makes me so excited every time, as evidenced by Zoya's return. I think it's very fun. I 
am fully on board with it. I also think that we immediate, immediately get more characterization for Zoya when she comes back mm-hmm. and sees Nina again because she's no longer we're no longer experiencing Zoya only from Alina's sort of perspective or storyline so we're seeing more of a character for Zoya which I just really appreciate and that continues even more into King of Scars yeah I think that that is a very good point I think seeing Zoya through Alina's perspective really skews things because once again Alina just to circle back she's not a character she her thoughts and and feelings are nothing so i feel like she did zoya a disservice and now that we're getting like a a more neutral point of view it's much more interesting absolutely the one thing that i was very excited to talk about and hopefully i didn't misremember this and we don't have to edit the whole thing out but Jesper is <laughs> pretending to attend university in Ketterdam, just like mm-hmm. Prince Nikolai had someone pretend to be him in university. And I was, I wanted to scream and Katie hadn't gotten to Six of Crows yet. And I just wanted to be like, Jesper, Jesper does, he does that. Oh my God, they both do it. Ah. Yeah, that seems to be the thing to do. In Jesper's defense, I feel like if I'm not mismarried, if I'm not risk. Wow, words are hard. If I'm not misremembering, he did start going to university in Ketterdam, and then he became a gambling addict and flunked out, basically, and then just kept pretending he was going there for his parents. But yeah, yes, a fake Dude. university student does seem to be the thing to do in Ketterdam. Different motivations, same end game: convincing your parents you are still a university student. Uh, that was the one crossover that I was most excited about because. Kind of going off what we were talking about, though, I think it's another interesting world building choice that she's chosen to basically just completely model her fantasy world off of the real world. I feel like a lot of fantasy kind of does that, but it's much more oblique. It's much more subtle. They're sort of trying to act like they didn't just base it off of the real world, but she's just like, Amsterdam? Nah. Ketterdam. Right. Russia? Nah. Ravka. Right. I. It's helpful because it gets people who maybe struggle more to picture things. It helps them create that mental picture because it is so close to our reality, minus the magic part. Maybe there is magic. I don't know. Still unsure. But <laughs> minus the Grisha powers, it, you know, you can say like, oh, the barrel probably looks like similar to this, a little bit crazier, a little bit seedier etc but you can Mm -hmm. picture a modification of amsterdam and for some people that's probably pretty helpful but as i said with other fantasy books i'm just used to being thrown in there and figuring it out so i feel like she just took a shortcut to us understanding the geopolitical relationship the geographical relationship between the places and i can't quite decide if i think it's brilliant or just really lazy and i feel that way about a lot of the things in her books generally but i do i do enjoy it overall if you look at the map the geographical things are switched around and it does not look just like a chunk of europe cut out um but yeah it definitely is in some ways seemingly like a shortcut to what we already know i think it's a little bit of both to be honest 
mm-hmm. genius and and lazy. But isn't that uh, a little bit part of being genius is not doing your extra work, you know, if you don't have to? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I had a math teacher in high school that told me the best employees are the really smart and really lazy ones because they will find a shortcut to do stuff, but still do it well. They are innovators. <laughs> yeah, I mean, although I just enjoyed the barrel for what it was, honestly, in Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom, I think it's not, it might be based in real life, but it also shares a lot of similarities with other fantasy novels that take place in a sort of pseudo-historical world that we live in. Uh, One of the big... Yeah, absolutely. One of the big similarities that jumped out to me immediately was um, Kaz Brecker has a lot of similar attributes as as a character as Locke Lamora from Scott Lynch's uh, Gentleman Bastard series. They're both orphaned boys who grow up in the thieving world and become like heist masterminds they can do all the things there are obviously differences uh, and they're not the same character i don't think that Locke lamora finds love with someone like that something like that but it it did jump out to me immediately that kaz is a more young adult feeling Locke lamora in some ways that doesn't make me hate the book I'm just pointing it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am not familiar with that book series. I did look it up after you said that to me, and I see the similarities very clearly on a surface level, having no other reference. When you say Kaz is more young adult, does that mean is Locke Lamora an adult or is Locke Lamora like a, an actual kid? No, like they're definitely... Either way with fantasy. The main part of the story occurs when Locke Lamora is older, I believe. I'll double check right now. Um, But I do believe you have flashbacks, but it's not... The whole story doesn't take place when they're 17, which, once again, completely unbelievable that these main characters in Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom are like teenagers. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Yeah, we're recording this out of order, so we haven't actually actively gone on our new adult rant yet, but hopefully by the time you're listening to this, you will have heard us go on our new adult rant. We have very strong feelings about them just making characters teenagers to just be able to market it in the young adult category. This, there's nothing about this book that requires it be YA. They're not teenagers. It's sort of gross, a lot of the things that happen to them considering their purported ages and i hate the i don't even know if this has been speculated with this particular series but i hate the cop out where they say oh it's a fantasy world so years are different so they're actually much older no they're not you just had to make them 16 and 17 so you could market them to teenagers right and it's bad if they were aged up in six of crows and crooked kingdom It would be the same story, except I would find it more believable that these characters, that Kaz Brecker is, like, second in command for this gang in the barrel. I I don't buy that they're all these ages and they're just the best at what they do and they're the only ones that could do this heist because either that or everyone except for the really good guys in the barrel just die before they get to be old, so 16 is old enough to be on top. No. I don't buy it. I 
did just double check and Locke Lamora is older during the events of his series. So, and maybe because we are not teenagers anymore, we're looking back at this like, oh my God, they're children. There's no way this would happen. And that might not be the case with the intended age group for these YA books, but I'm a believer that you can read whatever you want at whatever age you want when you're older. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm not advocating that children read adult smut novels or something. Please don't come at me with that. But but at the same time, I mean, honestly, when I was a teenager, I was reading well above my quote unquote reading level. And I was exposed to a lot of stuff like that. And again, at, like Bailey said, not advocating that we give teenagers porn, but they can deal with more mature subject matters. And we don't have to water it down and DH characters just so we can market books better. And also, I would argue that a lot of this stuff was not watered down. Inez's backstory is fucking horrifying. And it's even more horrifying because she's a 16-year-old. Right. So she would have been 14 during the events of some of these. And that's that's terrifying. And like you Mm -hmm. said, Katie, horrifying to think about. And I think that if these characters were older, Inez's backstory would still be horrifying, to be clear. But Mm -hmm. I think that it's still an appropriate young adult novel, even if these characters aren't young teens. Mm -hmm. So I just... Yeah, agreed. Something I get stuck on whenever I remember to think about their ages, because honestly, in my head... I read that they were teenagers, and then I was like, yeah, it's fine. They're adults. Yeah, I just, for the whole t- time, I pretty much just pretended they were early 20s, and it worked fine. Nothing about the story changed at all. Right. They could be older, and so the age is one of the problems that we have with this book. But once again, just because we have problems with the book did not mean that we were not deeply emotionally invested in how mm-hmm. these books ended and enjoying it. I particularly love uh, when I get live messages as someone's reading a book I've already <laughs> read. It's one of my favorite things. Their reactions to what I know is coming. I'm like, yes, I'm so here for it. And I loved <laughs> reliving Six of Crows and King of Scars through Katie reading these, even <laughs> though not everything is perfect. Yeah. I mean, again, that's part of our whole deal is that we can love things unabashedly and still then analyze when when they're flawed and most things are so uh, but agreed i overall really really loved this duology um i think it was a big step up generally from the trilogy i think it was much more emotionally resonant and interesting i think a lot of the decisions made a lot more sense and added a lot of depth to the characterizations bailey ahead of time was like, I just know you're probably going to love Kaz Brecker because I, as a noted, the Darkling stan, am kind of known for going for that kind of like little bit of darker, morally gray, bad boy character because I am trash. And at first I wasn't sure if I was like not really investing in Kaz to just to be contrary (laughs) because Bailey was like, you'll probably love him. And I was like, well, I'll show you. And I think for the first little bit, I was like, yeah, he's cool, but like not quite a stan. Um, and where I became more of a stan of Kaz is in his relationship with Inej. I think it's a lot deeper and more layered than your typical YA relationship. Kaz and Inej 
both have complicated backstories. They both have histories. And that comes into play in their relationship, which is definitely more than you get in a lot of YA romances, for sure, that these are complex, more complex characters, particularly more complex than Alina, who's not a character, and Mal. <laughs> um, and so it's very good story to have them have to work through these things together to get their relationship to be what they both want and that's very much thrown into the spotlight near the end of crooked kingdom when inez is hurt and kaz takes off his gloves to help her just oh my god <laughs> yeah that scene did things to me <sighs> i really um. think this book <laughs> did a much better job of building characters with depth that you could connect to and so, as Katie said, at the end of the book, there was a lot more emotional payoff because you now cared so much more for these characters than I felt like we got out of the original trilogy. Not saying I didn't care for some of the characters. You've heard our rant about Prince Nikolai. Obviously, we care <laughs> about some characters, but I think Libra Dugo did a much better job of giving a lot of the people that we interact with in this book more characterization. Yeah, I think it was really well done how they all clearly had trauma and that trauma affected and informed their lives and their relationships without becoming like a tragic backstory flaw type of thing. Like Kaz's aversion to skin contact comes from a very real traumatic event and it's something that didn't hold him back from being, you know, the biggest badass in the barrel or whatever but it really hindered his personal life and gave him all these things that he needed to overcome and still i think towards the end of the book i don't feel like he's fully overcome them which i also like i like that his and Inej's relationship is left in a hopeful place but you know it's not all resolved they still have a lot of shit to work through 100 percent, i'm with you on the hopeful place but not happy place because I feel like if we had another relationship and like Mal and Alina, I would be very frustrated because then it, the author would be unwilling to do bad things to her characters. And I don't like that. I just think that there is a place for happy books, I guess. They're not my favorite all the time. I'll read them sometimes. But if you're unwilling to do anything but give the perfect ending... And I don't, I don't love that. Yeah, I I think they have their place. I think that romance novels are great because they are pretty much guaranteed happy ending. Like that's a staple of the genre. And I think when I want a happy ending, I can pick up a romance book and be satisfied knowing that through all the strife, you know, it's going to be okay in the end. And that's not necessarily what I'm looking for in every book and i i prefer to be able to separate out like okay romance is the the happy endings and occasionally whatever other book i'm reading might have a happy ending but i want to be challenged and feel feelings for the most part when i'm reading right i don't need every book to be a happy romance and i don't need every book to be joe abercrombie's first law series which if you haven't read that um happy endings it is not 
Uh, which, by the way, Bailey, there was an Audible sale this weekend for a bunch of $5 books. And so I bought The the Blade itself, Hell among yes. other books. I also bought, I also, you may or may not be happy about this. I bought Akatar. Oh, no. <laughs> it was $5, so I had to. No, you definitely so, didn't have to. <laughs> I think I don't I, plan on reading it anytime soon. I've got way too long of a TBR, but uh, eventually I feel like I must just because. Um, I cannot get away from it on the TikTok algorithm, if, if for no other reason. Uh, and so now you're just feeding <laughs> that TikTok algorithm more by purchasing it and having it on your device. <laughs> There's a time downloaded yet, so it's fine for me to talk about Akatar. This is not it. <laughs> Back to <laughs> yes. So these grim fantasy series are different, and that's where I go when I'm. I know there won't be a happy ending. I do like the hopeful ending because it gives you the feeling that there's growth and change in these characters and, the, and there's a chance, but I don't know if we'll ever find out more or not. Um, and that's okay. I'm perfectly fine to leave it where it was on this closing scene of they're going to try and do this together, however together they can be. Mm-hmm. And I will say once again, there's like two sides of me. One side really likes how it was done narratively and I think it was the right choice and I think it made for a very interesting book and story and the other side of me is like give me more right now I do want to know more again I would watch seasons of shows for way longer than they should probably go on I just want all of the content of characters that I that I love I think that's where Bailey and I diverge a lot at least you do get the tv series for this at some point we'll see (laughs) you know, how much more content we get out of it. But I'm anticipating it being fairly popular. They would have to absolutely bomb it for it not to be recurring for at least one or two more seasons. I'm I'm guessing we will definitely get to um, more. More about the TV show at the end of this episode, but uh, other characters that I really think that I enjoyed a lot and that were different than her other characters. Well, first of all, I loved Wylan. <laughs> I did. I know that he is like the odd man out when Kaz first brings him in. And Jesper is so skeptical. He's absolutely not having this like merchant kid come in and help them with all of this. But, you know, he has a change of heart and I'm here for it. <laughs> I really liked the when she pulled the rug out from under everyone where Wyland's father was not trying to get him back. He was fucking taunting him because Wyland never learned to read. I felt um, like that was probably the biggest <laughs> emotional hit for me in this series. I, there are other major things that happen, which Katie has a lot of thoughts on, I know, but like the hit of finding out that Wyland can't read and his dad was just sending him messages to fuck with him. I hated it. And then... Oh, yeah. It was terrible. For sure terrible. When him and Jesper went and found out, like, his mom was alive at the care home. Oh, my God. I had to put the book down because I was like, this poor kid. Yeah. uh, Wyland's dad fucking sucks. Maybe it's because we experienced Wyland learning his trauma, like, in real time, whereas with a lot of the other characters... Their traumas were kind of past and now they were processing them, as we said, you know, 
Kaz is not fully over everything, and Nej is not fully over everything that happened to her. Neither is Nina. But with Wylan, we're experiencing it more firsthand, so maybe it hit me harder. Maybe I'm just a Wylan stan at heart. I don't know. Probably a little bit of both. Yeah, I really like Wylan. I agree with everything Bailey just said about watching him work through his trauma. I think he was really fun and goofy. Do you think he couldn't read because he had dyslexia or like was that what was being implied or do you think he just like truly couldn't even perceive letters i didn't know if it was trying to walk that line between like alluding to like a real life learning disorder or if he just truly could not read i sort of got that it's possible he had say dyslexia a a learning disability but also that his dad didn't do anything to help that it was seen he couldn't learn at the pace that he was expected to. So instead of attempting to help him, his dad was just like, you're worthless and we're not going to do anything anymore. And instead of that, I'm going to taunt you and make you live all of your life in misery because when you were younger, you didn't do exactly what I wanted on my timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. His dad sucks. I, I think it's well established that, you know. Fuck, fuck Vanek. He sucks. Yeah, Wylan was great. I really enjoyed the evolution of his relationship with Jesper. I think it was really fun to just have this sort of non-commented upon queer romance just happening. Not it wasn't it was not really an A plot, more like a, a B or a C plot, but they were growing closer and they kind of found that with each other and it was just totally normally thrown into there. And I think that that's happening more and more. There are so many great LGBTQ plus books and stories coming out and being published now. And I think maybe it just still feels like it's a little bit revolutionary because we grew up with offerings that were very much not in that realm. And so every time it happens, and especially when it happens and it's just sort of not at all a big deal, it just makes me really happy. Echoing the fact that it is still unusual to us, probably because of the age we grew up in, to just have a side plot queer couple where it's like oh yeah they're friends it developed into something more look now it's it's like cute they have a relationship versus a it's simply not existing at all mm-hmm. or b it being the main plot and it, always there's something wrong it it had to be a traumatic it was never a happy this is a queer couple moment. The book was about someone's trauma. Yeah, and it was centered on coming out and centered on people maybe not accepting them for being gay and centered on, you know, all of the sort of negative aspects that come with queer people discovering their identities. And it was just really nice that Jesper and Wyland were like, you like boys? Okay, cool, me too. Let's uh, let's keep flirting. Definitely a moment that I really enjoyed in the book. Um, maybe that's probably part of why they were some of my favorite characters, but I also think I lean towards like the fun, lighthearted characters anyway, because as established, not necessarily a bad boy stan. Like Kaz is great. I think he's one <laughs> of the, the better characters, but I I liked Jesper and Wylan a lot. I think they're interesting, they're fun, they're snarky. Love that Jesper likes to dress up. So cool. <laughs> for sure Kaz Kaz can be all emo in his his gloves and his hat and all that and Jesper can have the bright colors yep I mean it works it's balanced and I think it's necessary in stories and friend groups and you know it's boring if we just hang out with people just like us or like the one kind of character that we like so I really liked the variety in in the 
the gang, the dregs, this particular subset of the dregs. And Jesper and Kaz's fun, sort of begrudging, like, is that what you're wearing? Friendship? That was a great aside to, they're dealing with heavy stuff. They're doing this crazy heist. And it's just like, oh, cool. Is that, is that, yeah, that's, we're leaving now? Okay. (laughs) Very much here for it. Yeah, they're great. Other great characters in the gang, of course, are Nina and Matthias. First of all, Nina rocks. I love pretty much everything about Nina. I love that she is like spunky in your face. She's super confident um, without being a bitch. I feel like it would have been really easy to give Nina a little bit more of a Zoya treatment where she's like, yeah, I'm good at shit. I know I'm good at shit. And uh, bow down to me. And they definitely didn't do that. She has a lot of empathy and a lot of really good traits. I really love Nina, generally. I agree. I think Nina has very supportive best friend energy in, and not just in a side character way. I mean, it's genuinely just who she is as a character. She's she's there for her friend. She's going to do everything, especially thrown into the circumstances in which she was, which is after being captured by the next character we can talk about. Matthias. (sighs) Boy, do I have a lot to say about Matthias. First of all, I love him. He is a wonderful character. I love his and Nina's enemies to lovers thing. It was a very well-realized enemies to lovers relationship. I also like that it also sort of took place in the background and in flashbacks, but then they still had to like regain each other's trust when they broke him out of prison. Um, I like the whole Nina being more like sexually liberated and matthias being a tiny baby prude manly man he's so embarrassed that was very cute (laughs) i think as the series went on and nina sort of pried him open he became very himbo-ish very um a little bit of golden retriever energy but more like just a really stupid golden retriever who wanted to please but just was wrong about how to do it some of the time with his like antiquated patriarchal society bullshit yeah i know everybody says one aspect of being a himbo is that you drink your respect women juice and matthias does he drink too much respect women drink right matthias drinks his respect women juice it's just a different flavor than they go for in <laughs> ravka and ketterdam you know the fjord and uh-huh. respect women juice is uh outdated i guess yeah it's like expired respect women juice they should have taken it off the shelf a long time ago Maybe that's why he's so bitter all the time. Oh, for sure. That is definitely why he's so bitter all the time. Anyway, I love him. And I I think they did a really good job of... They, Lee Bardugo, she did a really good job of making us love him more and more as it went along, which maybe should have been warning as to what happened, um, which I have a lot of thoughts about. Uh, I texted Bailey when he like first encountered... I mean, big spoiler alert, by the way. When he like first encountered countered the younger Druscala in the alley and I was like Bailey if Matthias dies I am gonna lose my shit and she was just like keep reading and I was like no and so then he got shot yeah there was nothing I could say in that moment that like wasn't going to give away what was going to happen so I just had to sit on my hands and wait while Katie finished it because I knew how much she was going to hate this because I we all hated it. Um, I know I just said, oh, I don't love happy endings, but I I wanted the redemption for Matthias and Nina. Yeah, and I'll get into that in more technical details in a moment, but 
then he got shot and I was like, oh no. And then I was like, wait, this was probably just a fake out because then it was Nina's chapter and then Matthias arrived and I was like, okay, cool. They're going to save him. And they didn't. And I am very, very upset about it. On like an emotional level, I'm very upset about it because like I just spent several minutes saying I love Matthias, but also sort of on a, a more technical storytelling level. I feel like his arc had ended basically at the end of Six of Crows or maybe at like the very beginning of Crooked Kingdom when he realized that killing Grisha was maybe not the right move, my dude, and had started to really accept, you know, his new role in life. And I really do feel like he spent a majority of Crooked Kingdom being like the the background guy with lots of muscles that could scare people away and basically just flirting with Nina and they were just kind of doing their own thing. I don't think he had a lot of other stuff to do in that book. And so it feels really weird and really wasteful to kill him when they did. Right. He definitely spent some time as basically an errand boy who was Mm -hmm. Nina's keeper is not a great word for it because she doesn't need a keeper. Nina is an independent woman, but he didn't have as much of a key role as he did in Six of Crows because he was their knowledge breaking into the ice fortress. But he he didn't drive any changes within himself in Crooked Kingdom. He was just sort of Mm -hmm. chilling, being embarrassed by Nina's open sexuality and doing whatever Kaz told him he needed to do to get the job done. And I think you're right, Katie. It felt like after he realized that killing Grisha was a bad thing and he was starting to change and realize that his feared and point of view was not necessarily the most complete point of view, um, he then just kind of sat for a little while before it was like, oh, okay, now that you all love him and he's been sitting here, like, I guess we'll kill him. Yeah. And I do like, I read a little bit of her interviews where she talked about how he was being killed by his former self. I don't hate that as like a plot device. I think it was the wrong time to do it. They either should have done it way earlier, but then they couldn't because then who would have gotten Nina through her Jirdaparam withdrawal? Or what I was talking to Bailey about was they should have had sort of a symbolic death at the end of Crooked Kingdom where like he really has to go to Fierda to deprogram all of the other cultists. And Nina couldn't come with him right away because she had met back up with the Ravkin delegation and she really needed to go do Ravka stuff to make sure Durda Parem wasn't there. And they just like had to part and they're not sure when or if they're going to meet again, but they still love each other, even though they're like bound to these greater causes. Um, and then, you know, down the line, maybe they reunite and like then Matthias is killed by his former self, which would hurt my feelings even more, but it would be more narratively impactful, I feel. Agreed. And again, we're clearly not against character death because sometimes you have to do that and sometimes you cry while reading a book because they killed your favorite character but i feel like the way katie builds it up you know in her rewrite definitely would have made a more impactful feeling their relationship would have had so much more and i know the other thing i wanted to you know i had to avoid telling katie was (laughs) there is some some cleanup closure in King of Scars a little bit with Nina and Matthias, but still, I think it felt like he sat around and then at the end when he was just making sure everybody got back to the boat, etc., etc., it was like, okay, yes, now he is not able to do anything with his newfound decision of uh, being an open-minded human. Yeah, so nothing about what happened the way it happened in Crooked Kingdom made me feel that 
Mal needed to die. It made me feel either that she had decided that someone needed to die to add drama to the end, or even that she had her heart set on Mal dying by being killed by his former self and couldn't find a better place to stick it in. And so she just sort of shoved it at the end. And I, I feel like both of those really did. Whichever reason, or if she was really convinced it was the right place to do it, I think it, it did a big disservice to the narrative. I'm also still very mad about it because Matthias, I love him. And uh, so I just need to say that I'm going to find Lee Bardugo like I'm Kaz Brecker and she is Pekka Rollins because she has to answer for this crime. Yes. If in whatever world we get the opportunity to interview authors... And we get to talk to Lee Berdugo. That's going to be a question we're going to ask. Um, I'm going to be physically restraining Katie. And we're just going to politely ask why she made the decision to kill Matthias right then. It will be, everything will be fine. We'll be sure to live stream it. It's fine. I don't, I, I'm not tough enough to actually hurt anyone. Um, I, I will just give very angry stares. Okay, cool. Good. It's me we should be worried about, I guess. <laughs> And then just, I mean, not not just, this is just total, a total content shift. I also wanted to talk about something that Lee Bardugo has been doing throughout her, her books where it's very supernatural syndrome where like they beat the devil and they closed hell, but now there's a super devil and a turbo hell, you know, like the Grishaverse, the Grisha were so powerful and they were so powerful that they could only have one amplifier because... Otherwise, they'd be too powerful and it would throw off the balance of nature. And then in Six of Crows, it's like, but now there's a drug that makes them super duper even more powerful, but it's really dangerous. And then even going on to King of Scars, it's like, well, now there are just like literal gods, I guess. Right. And Zoya had to take in the power of the gods in order to defeat the other god and save Nikolai and... um. Very, very insane. Honestly, amazing. I understood a bit of it, truly, reading it first. But yes, it is very much so supernatural syndrome where it just, every threat is so much bigger and so much worse, even though each threat is presented as the end game. And I think you can create bigger conflicts as your series grows. I think the problem was the original conflict was not written with the idea that it would need to be topped in farther books and so that's why it feels like each one is just even more insane than the last one is because it has to be to be bigger but i don't think we need them to be bigger i think sometimes conflicts can be smaller if they matter more to the characters yeah and i think that something she actually does fairly well is that even as the like bigger global conflicts are scaling up i think she does do a good job of keeping smaller scale interpersonal conflicts going and that we care about them like in king of scars all the like political drama is really interesting i think and i almost think it's it would have been more interesting than you know even more super powered superpowers but i think that at least keeping that balance is a good thing that she has been doing. Like a lot of the things that she does, I'm pretty conflicted as to whether I think it's like interesting and impressive that she keeps scaling up or whether I think it just really does not need to happen and maybe she should calm down. She does, as you said, keep really good interpersonal things. There's always conflict with the characters that is not necessarily tied to the conflict, the big conflict, capital conflict. Yeah. And then going back on what I just said, and sorry, interrupting you, Bailey, is having more or less complimented her on keeping all that interpersonal drama. 
No, that's not quite what I was going to say. When she does good character work, it's really good. Like we've talked about Kaz and Inej. We've talked about uh, in the Grishaverse trilogy, the closure that Alina and the Darkling get when he dies. And I think that that was really good and interesting and characterful and impactful. And then she fucking brings the Darkling back to life at the end of King of Scars. Right. What What are you doing, Lee? I don't necessarily think that needed to be done to give conflict to Prince Nikolai and the new Ravka. I think, as you said, the political conflict that she was building between all these nations with the breakneck increase in technology and the power and all these strange happenings around Ravka, like the tendon and bone bridge, those things could have been so good to create conflict and create a plot. And now we just have the Darkling back because literal gods um, helped him come back or whatever. You know, I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested to see whether or not it is like really the Darkling or whether it's some sort of a trick or where exactly that goes when the next book comes out. Which is next month. So. But it all just feels pretty ridiculous. Yeah, very excited. Yes. So anyway, all that to say, we have a lot of feelings about how Lee Bardugo builds her world. And there, it's interesting, if not necessarily good. It's far from the worst I've come across, uh, particularly in YA fantasy, but it definitely mm-hmm. does leave both of us readers, big, big readers, with a few like, mm, this could probably be better. We'd be a little happier with this. <laughs> That's probably a little bit of a personal problem. It's just like, how many more books are is it going to take before they start sending gay angels to Turbo Hell, you know? Well, I, I would be interested in how gay angels and Turbo Hell came into Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom, but I would definitely still read it. I mean, not going to lie. <laughs> For those of you who are not Supernatural fans and don't get that reference, that's a Supernatural reference. <laughs> um, and I don't know that I would recommend you look into it because... It's just it's a, a whole can of worms, but it's almost interesting enough that you should at least save yourself 15 seasons if you haven't done it already. Yeah, maybe just read about the drama and don't actually watch all of the show because it's a lot. Better yet, subscribe and stick around until we cover all the drama. <laughs> yes, we absolutely will at some point. Anyway, scaling back our own in podcast universe and circling back to Six of Crows on a little bit more of a an in-depth level. Bailey, I know you wanted to talk about all the heists. Yes. So the heist, they're cool. They're fun. You, I'm invested in how this is all going to play out, what twists and turns we're going to have, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes I am just not fully on board with Kaz's planning because we don't see Kaz planning. We only see it play out. And it does work. But the number of steps ahead that Kaz is just leaves me filled with a little bit of doubt about all of these heists, especially at the end of Crooked Kingdom when they're just with the Council of Tides and there's the fake shooting and everybody, somebody gets captured and then he's like, no, Pekka Rollins, I have your kid, he's buried alive, blah, blah, blah. I I got a little lost there, I'm not going to lie. There were too many threads that I had a hard time believing Kaz had played all of these threads out and built in catch-alls for any of these things to happen. Okay, I definitely see where you're coming from, and I think you're right in a lot of ways. One thing that I'll just get out out of the way is that the trope of the character that just always has another trick up his sleeve, I unabashedly love. I, I don't care if it doesn't make sense. 
whenever the character's like, haha, but I also thought of that, you know, I love it. So trying not to let that fully blind my analysis of this, but I think it also comes back to what I was talking about in last episode about how one of the tenets of writing is that if a plan is going to succeed, you can't tell the reader about it ahead of time. And so I think they had to really balance showing and actually like demonstrating Kaz's planning abilities and how devious and well thought out all of the stuff he was doing with that dramatic narrative tension so things like we did see a lot of the planning for things like the uh like the silo heist and you know he went through all of the steps and then they had to sort of hold on to like extra reveals so that there was that narrative tension and surprise once it was twisted if that makes sense Right. And also with the silo heist, we know that it didn't fully go as planned because Inej did get captured out of that and Nina discovered her weird, scary new power to control not living Mm -hmm. humans. Well, yeah, that's if if you're planning something, you can only tell the reader ahead of time if it goes wrong. So that's why we got to hear about the plan for the silo heist. And then it went wrong. But you could tell that there were like all of those steps that he had very carefully plotted. So, you know, he's capable of of planning things to that level. And that so then that's like the demonstration for like when the payoff of his like, oh, I had another card up my sleeve pays off. Yeah, I, I can see that. It might have just been the pace at which we approached the final end of the heist that it felt. Mm-hmm. It's possible that I was reading so quickly the timeline blurred together in my mind, but it felt like the time that had passed between when all of this started with like the silo heist and stuff passed so quickly to the final end game that I think Mm -hmm. I felt like there was no way Kaz could have had time to plan all of this as they're just hanging out in that is absolutely fair that's fair but I think that she actually did a really good job setting up for a lot of it like when she had Kaz teach Wylan that sometimes the best thief will actually leave something behind and that set up for like leaving the thing in the safe and you know showing that he was good at at bluffing and reading people and so that's paid off when he basically just guessed that Pecker Rollins had a son right you know all that stuff it's it's fine if you still don't find it uh, like super believable or if that's just not a trope that you go in for but I think she did actually a very good job of like laying down all that foreshadowing and all of that groundwork for it to work it might just be a trope i don't love because of who i am as a person i am (laughs) too logical for that in some ways probably i want to see everything in front of me first and follow it yeah that absolutely would make would make sense cool 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 i saw a tumblr post the other day and it was like my kid is fine excuse me, your kid is falling through the dining room ceiling onto the dinner party you are hosting as he tries to break into your safe. And I was just like, oh, hey, (laughs) a wild Grishaverse post appears on my dash. I understand that reference. (laughs) I've been sending Bailey pretty much all of these TikToks, but the TikTok algorithm is doing really great for me right now because I keep getting Malianorets of hate TikToks. (laughs) It makes me happy every time. She sends them all to me and she's just like, yeah, this is it. And I'm like, oh my God, here we go. Okay, I mean, I'll give you that we're just going to have different opinions on the heists. I didn't mean to imply that I thought it was a bad thing, just that it wasn't something that I loved about the presentation of the story. Right, which is totally fair to have that opinion. I do think I was more commenting, not directly in a response to you, but more that I feel like a lot of times these things are done poorly and the groundwork is not laid. And I think that she structured it really well. And I was impressed with how how much groundwork she did do. Because heists are really hard to plan. (laughs) 
And then you have to, if you're the author, you're having to plan the heist so that it's like super clever, but then also plan how it's going to go wrong and screw your characters over. And then also plan how they're going to get out of that. And it just makes me feel very stupid that like one person had to come up with all of that. Oh, yeah. I'm not claiming that writing a heist is easy. And in fact, I never plan on writing a heist. I'm perfectly comfortable to sit here and discuss other people's heists so that I don't have to do the hard intellectual work. I can just break it down once it's already written. (laughs) Absolutely fair. So in King of Scars, like the Judah Parham comes back up, particularly when Nina, but she finds all those women who are apparently addicted and they're rescuing them. And that was a Mm -hmm. very interesting thing because prior to this, we only see Judah Parham used directly to cause harm to someone. You know, in Six of Crows, the Grisha are using it and they're burning themselves out to use it because they're basically enslaved to fight. Nina uses it at great personal cost and is stuck with that for a majority of Crooked Kingdom dealing with the fallout of using it. And then in King of Scars, she's dealing with the after effects of losing Matthias and she finds this group of women that are all being apparently forced to use the drug in very suspect circumstances. And I just, I'm ex- I want to see more of where that thread goes because I do feel like Judah Parham was thrown into Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom not as an afterthought because it it's needed in the story, but more of as it's not wrapped up. Yeah, I think that that's fair. I think it's interesting to see the evolution of, you know, they've created this new strain and it seems like now it's not causing them to like burn out. It's more to keep them docile and then they're like forcing them to breed and carry babies, which is really fucked up. There's a lot of fucked up shit going in Fierda. Like I said, very weird circumstances going on with the use of Judiparum in King of Scars, and I am curious to see where it takes us. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Requires more, I think it requires us having read Rule of Wolves to really comment on it further to see what she's actually going for. Because I can't tell if maybe she's got something in mind or if it's just another supernatural syndrome where she's just ramping stuff up. Coupled with all of the political intrigue, I could see it being combining with that to be an interesting take on industrial revolutions, not necessarily our industrial revolution, but industrial revolutions in general, because you've got all of this technology that Nikolai is working on in his labs and things like that. And you've also got the Fjordans doing drug studies. <laughs> drug studies. Mm-hmm. Okay, Bailey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's fair. So I'm wondering, she doesn't strike me as the author that will take it to the place of like societal commentary, but I could see it. A lot of the things are fitting into place for it being used as that. And possibly we'll mm-hmm. have to do an addendum to an episode down the road after we get the chance to read Rule of Wolves and see what happens. Yeah, I agree. I'm excited to see where it goes. And I'm excited that I'm like caught up with you now finally. So I like, except now we both have to wait for Rule of Wolves to come out, which is honestly rude of of time. Yeah, I've spent so long waiting for books that it no longer has any meaning to me. It just is what it is. I was talking to a coworker the other day and she did not want to start a series because she knew, similar to Rule of Wolves, that it would be a couple months wait. The book had a published date, but the series wasn't complete. And she's like, I don't like reading books that aren't 
finished because I don't want to have to wait. And as someone that read, you know, Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, Harry Potter, obviously we had to wait on. I had to wait. The Kingkiller Chronicles. Yeah, I had to wait on Aragon. I've been waiting on Outlander. Uh, yeah, Kingkiller Chronicles. Uh, Jim Butcher novels, reading Dresden Files. Like, I'm just <laughs> used to waiting for books, so eventually except for i don't think we'll get a song of ice and fire and king killer chronicles but uh that's beside the point waiting for books isn't necessarily a bad thing for me but now that we're both so excited about both of these books i am kind of like dude i want this book now (laughs) yeah my only thing with waiting for books is that my brain doesn't retain information if it's not like immediately relevant i just sort of like stick it in a storage room in the back of my brain and don't think about it and so I lose a lot of details about books if I'm waiting for a long time and so then I end up basically usually choosing to just reread everything before the new one comes out and it just takes up a lot of time so it you know I'd prefer to read completed series but I also get really excited about books so it's not usually feasible right uh shout out to people on the internet who type up detailed summaries with spoiler warnings at the front because i have to use those as well instead of rereading even with king of scars it had been so long since i read it and because as we pointed out i read it first reading the summary i was seeing things like oh my god that makes so much sense how did i (laughs) this meant nothing to me when i read it at the first did i just write these things off probably the answer is probably So I think one of the things that I liked about Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom was the point of view changes in the books. How do you feel about POV switches? I love them. It's probably one of my preferred ways for books to be written. And I don't know if that comes from imprinting on A Song of Ice and Fire at a very young age. I mean, not super young. I was like 17, but still. And I think it's a really great great way to build narrative, add tension. I like this is something you can't do as much in books, but I love the trope of multiple characters like recounting something that's happening from their different point of views and bonus points if it makes all the other characters look incompetent. That's always a fun time. <laughs> but I like seeing how different characters experience the same things and how that shapes the rest of the story. Absolutely. And I thought it was used to great effect in especially Crooked Kingdom. I enjoyed the POV switches. It added tension. You didn't necessarily get as much of a full recounting of events, but you did see some crossover where something would happen with one character and then you would see it from the other character's POV and it gave you a broader sense of what was happening, especially with all of that, the prisoner trade-off on the bridge and all of that in Crooked Kingdom. I think it played out really well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I liked that, which was something I wanted to talk about with these books. We don't get a lot of point of view switches in the original trilogy. I really can't think of any. I feel like the whole book is from, or the whole trilogy is from Alina's point of view. It is. I think we get, we zoom out a little bit occasionally, Mm -hmm. but for the most part, it's it's all through Alina. Yeah. And that's one of the main complaints I feel like we had last time about specifically them breaking out of the underground cult church apparatus thing where all the other characters made a plan to rescue her and Alina was like I don't know what's going on because we couldn't get any of their other POVs. I think that the beginning of Ruin and Rising would have been a lot better if we had POV changes to allow us to see time moving from multiple characters point of view and also see some of the planning but I think we have thoroughly made our (laughs) views on that clear and I think Mm -hmm. definitely adding the POV switches to Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom has shown 
that as an author, Lee Berdugo was able to write a, a better duology, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's clear she evolved her techniques because this POV switching is carrying through to King of Scars. And I think that she learned from not necessarily mistakes, but things that she could improve upon. And I really appreciate that out of her. I really like watching stories get better over time because we learn more. Right. I think if she hadn't grown as an author, we would not feel the same way that we do about these other books. But because despite finding many flaws with the original trilogy and the way it was written, we were still very excited to keep reading. And she did continue to improve. And that made us all the more invested in the series. So I love that that growth. I love to see it. Mm -hmm. So I guess that brings us to speculation for the TV show, which should be coming out here pretty soon Mm -hmm. in April. So is there anything in... We actually got a date. Yeah, it's I think it's the 23rd, maybe. I think so too. Yes, it's coming out the uh, the 23rd, which actually uh, tomorrow. You're going to be listening to this on the 22nd, so... TV show is coming out tomorrow. We are recording a little bit in advance, so we've still got a ways to wait, which is rude. So if you need us the day after you listen to this episode, just know we are both glued to our TVs and we are watching Shadow (laughs) and Bone on Netflix. Yeah, my plan is technically that's a Friday, so I'll I'll work on Friday and then Saturday and Sunday. I'm just going to sit on my couch, watch it straight through probably. Pretty much my plan as well. Very, very excited for it. They have released still photos and we've seen some set photos. They still don't have a full trailer out at the time of recording, but I am very, very excited for the actors and actresses they've chosen in the stills. This may not come true, and I will be very sad if it doesn't, but I <laughs> feel like they, the pictures I'm seeing, I'm digging it with the characters in my mind. Yeah, in particular, that one still of Mal shirtless with his arm around Alina, you know, that actually makes me believe in their chemistry a little bit. So I'm excited to see if we have maybe different opinions on TV show Mal versus book Mal. I truly hope we do have different opinions on (laughs) TV Mal than we do on book Mal. I think it would be very easy for the screenwriters to improve on his character without changing the main part of the story, but simply making it more believable. And yes, that picture had more chemistry than the entire freaking book did. Yeah, I have personally been trying not to read too much about the TV show, mainly because I just recently finished the books. And then secondly, I think it's fun to go in a little bit blind to these things. But I... Oh no, I will be consuming all pre-airing content. Perfect. So we can we can balance out that way. I was reading on a Twitter thread, and I don't know if this is true or not because I did not do any follow-up investigation, but somebody said that the like Grishaverse trilogy would be happening, you know, kind of live, and then they'd be interspersing things that happened prior to Six of Crows. So things like Nina and Matthias getting shipwrecked and their whole, the start of their whole enemies to lovers thing. Enemies to lovers, Katie's favorite. Big, big fan. But anyway. I have heard that as well, that it will be... Because there's two years difference in book canon that we will be seeing the drags leading up to the events that are going to happen in the Six of Crows novel. So I don't know 
how far back they'll go in quote-unquote flashbacks, but I think that the first series is set to focus mostly on what happens in Shadow and Bone, as you said, interspersed with the Six of Crows characters doing things. Like, we'll probably see Kaz doing some minor, like, heists and stuff. We'll see Jesper gambling, that sort of... We'll see Inej, probably we'll see some of... So you know how in Six of Crows they tell you in the past that Kaz found Inej and bought out her contract, etc., etc.? I think we're going to see that mm-hmm. play out in quote unquote real time as opposed to it just being a reference when you're reading Six of Crows. We'll probably see stuff like that play out because they'll be setting up for the actual events of Six of Crows to happen in later seasons. Yeah, I'm wondering how how exactly they'll do that because I feel like there's almost no point for a lot of the Six of Crows content until you get them together. So I wonder if you're, they're going to try and get them together as a group before like the season finale, sort of. And if they maybe have like, a, they're going to like insert a mini heist that makes them all be friends or something. I'm just wary of them doing basically prequel stuff with Six of Crows. I don't know how they do a mini heist ahead of time since... Part of Six of Crows is getting Matthias out of prison. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. But they could at, they could at least get they could get everyone but Matthias, I think, and Wylan. They could get because Nina has done dealings with Kaz already, and so is Jesper, and then Inej and Kaz. So that's four or six. I think that's what we'll see is Inej and Kaz and Nina and Jesper all coming together because they aren't quite the gang that they are by the end of Six of Crows when it starts, but they definitely are all known to each other. Mm -hmm. It'll be very interesting to see how they do that. I'm also wondering how much of Shadow and Bone they're going to play out. Are they going to do like the whole thing or are we going to follow the books a little bit more as like a season one season two season three because if they're if they're drawing it out that far first of all i just simply don't think there's content i can only watch people travel for so long we already did that with harry (laughs) potter being one in two parts please no do a montage for traveling But also if they're going to draw out the main events of Shadow and Bone, then they have to come up with a lot more background for the Six of Crows characters. And I think that breaking away from canon like that often leads to bad decisions. Sometimes it leads to good decisions, but not always. Yeah, honestly, I bet they can get, they could get probably the whole trilogy into one season, except since they are interspersing between the two regions, that might be a little bit more difficult. But easily two seasons, I think they could get the entire trilogy wrapped up pretty well i'm interested to see how else they adjust things with timing because like nina would have still nina would have been evacuated to the orphanage because she's younger than alina and so she wouldn't be on a feared and druskella vessel um because she was like taught by zoya so that timing is gonna have to change somewhat if we're gonna get any of nina right it's gonna be very interesting to see how they do it but i agree i don't I think two seasons and possibly halfway through the second season fully transitioning from, you know, they'll wrap up uh, Alina and the Darkling and Mal and move fully into Six of Crows a little bit more in the middle of the second season. I could see that being a good timeline. Yeah, I'm not seeing a lot that would prevent, other than like strict timing, I'm not seeing a lot that would prevent them from just moving up the Six of Crows heist to maybe they like get the, they like get the, they're asked to do it in the beginning of season two. And so then season two is all of the like building the crew because really all that's happening is the Jirda Parham and I don't see why that would necessitate the Darkling drama being over and done with before it happens. Right. I think that the books taking place two years apart makes sense, but I think there's a lot of leeway in there for them to wiggle around the the TV timeline to make the two things work together. Also, I don't believe 
that I've seen any information for the casting of Wylan, which makes me think that they're not planning on doing the full heist until at least season two. Yeah, they haven't cast Wylan or Nikolai. I don't think Nikolai has been cast. Probably not. Um, Which I am, you know, obviously, you know, we are extremely intrigued to figure out who they're going to have <laughs> play. Prince Nikolai, mm-hmm. golden boy, apple of our eyes. Mm-hmm. Our angel, our husband. While we're talking about casting, I will just go ahead and say that um, my darkling loving heart is so excited for Ben Barnes. That's really good. Yeah, honestly, the casting for Kaz Brecker, Freddie Carter, I might become a Kaz stan now. I'm just saying. Yay, join us. <laughs> it might convert me because... Honestly, all pretty much all of the casting looks really good. I think that they're... They did a good job of getting people that look like who I had in my head, at least. Like I said at the very beginning of this segment, like I think the all this casting is really good. I saw these stills of Kaz and I just think that it's very good how it's going to play out. Inej is how I pictured her. I'm so curious to see Nina on screen. I'm excited for that. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for just everything. Just not Mal. Although, I mean, he does look good in the still. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> He can be eye candy, I guess. That's fine. Yeah. Also, after saying I wasn't really looking up stuff pre-doing it, I ended up on the IMDb page to look at the casting. And I don't know how accurate this is, but Kaz, Alina, Mal, Inej, Jesper, and the Darkling are all listed for eight episodes. And then Nina is only listed for four. Yeah. So that that sort of brings a little bit of insight, I feel like, in how it's going to be structured. Yes. They have cast uh, David, the Apparat, Bagra, Matthias, Zoya. Matthias is only listed in one episode. But again, that could just be because... You know, it's IMDb and the show's not out yet and people just update stuff. Right. And also that could be because there it's going to be, like you said, it, it cuts of the Six of Crows characters getting slotted into place for the start of like season two. Because I'm, I'm assuming at this point they're operating under there being two seasons. The episode titles are actually on Wikipedia. Just the Shadow mm-hmm. and Bone TV series Wikipedia page. Episode eight is called No Mourners. No funerals. Oh, no. I mean, that has to be the title of either the season two premiere or the season two finale. I assume it's one of the two. I'm tempted to guess that we're going to get a bit of a cliffhanger in No Mourners. Mm -hmm. Which is rude, but to be expected. I think it's interesting that they went with Okazatsia for episode four. Because that's such a weird, like, it's a word that nobody's going to be familiar with. And so. I was going to say that as well. Um. (laughs) A searing burst of light is the first episode. So that's obviously a reference to Alina learning that she is the Sun Summoner. Mm -hmm. We're all someone's monster. That's definitely going to be the Darkling and Alina and their sort of him drawing her in. I'm like doing a little dance right now. I'm so excited. The making at the heart of the world. I don't know what that one's going to be. So that is like the... The thing that Grisha, like, draw their power from. The small science. Mm-hmm. It all comes from the making at the heart of the world. They said it, like, a billion times in King of Scars when they were in the, the gods' realm or whatever. Oh, that's probably why I didn't quite remember it. But that means that my speculation for episode three is going to be Alina learning her powers, working with Begra. I feel like we'd have to have some of that in episode two. Unless episode two is basically, like, the Darkling bringing Alina to the little palace, which... 
probably could be stretched out, but... I'm sure it's probably a little bit of both as well. I, the making at the heart of the world might be more of just things that happen towards the end of Shadow and Bone. Otkazatsia, I don't know. what is that going to be when we start to learn more about Mal? Yeah, I think it must be focused more on the non-Grisha characters. Maybe what Grisha think of the non-Grisha characters and their like magical superiority complex and probably creating a further divide between Mal and Alina. Uh, I don't know if that's when he'll be like back or not, but we'll see. Uh, show me who you are. That's probably if I had to hazard a guess, which I mean, obviously, we're going to listen back to this once the TV show is out and be like, oh, my God, <laughs> we were so wrong or oh, my God, we were so right. But show me who you are. I could see that being some of the internal struggle of Alina starting to see the Darkling and all of that from uh, Storm and Siege. I almost think it could be the opposite where the Darkling is starting to pull the darkness out of Alina and sort of shape her in his image. Oh, OK. Mm-hmm. Uh, the heart is an arrow. That's got to be a hunt. Yeah like a, a tracking reference for an amplifier mm-hmm. it has to be mm-hmm. uh episode seven is the unsee so that makes see i feel like that then is like that final battle from yeah ruin and rising but s- somehow at the same time i don't think they're packing all three books into an eight episode trilogy uh, series no i think what they probably are doing is some sort of like miniature unsee showdown but this is where Alina and Mal like escape across the unsea. You're probably right. And then probably the last episode is more to do with the the Six of Crows gang. It has to be because it's called No Mourners and that doesn't come up until mm-hmm. Six of Crows. Yeah, but it's they probably they probably do like a little bit of like Mal and Alina on the run wrap up and then the most the bulk of the episode is focused on on the gang. Okay, that is hmm, I'm excited to well, obviously watch the TV show, but also excited to revisit our thoughts on these episode titles based solely on them being listed on Wikipedia and nothing else of any. We don't know what's happening, guys. We don't have an inside secret. I'm not even going to lie. We're recording this in February. Like, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's February 15th. And that's all the information that we have. So very excited to see what we got wrong, what we got right what the show gets wrong and right. I hope the show is able to portray more of Kaz's internal struggles, especially with why he wears gloves and the touching and things. And I hope that they don't throw away the struggle that he faces when he wants to be in a relationship with Inej just to have flashy on-screen like chemistry to have I don't know what this is going to be rated so I don't want to say like a sex scene or whatever but I don't want them to skip straight to intimacy and ignore this huge part of his character yeah agreed and I I feel like it's made a big enough deal in the books that they would have to be real idiots to leave that kind of thing out but you know we've we've been burned by book adaptations before so we have been burned by many a book adaptation before (laughs) I think that it's going to be a very good tv series I'm excited for it. I hope that it gains traction to get at least a little bit more. Katie, I know you would love 15 seasons of new content. Mm -hmm. Please. I'll be content with like three if that's what it plays out as, especially reading if we get the chance to read Rule of Wolves uh, before this come the TV show comes out. It would be cool to see how far they could take it as they continue with these characters and maybe make original content for some of the characters we don't see anymore. I don't really want any orphanage scenes of Mal and Alina, though. I could leave those. I mean, we'll definitely get, like, the happy ending one, and then we can move on. 
Right. And then I want Aunt Zoya coming to visit the orphanage. Like, that's it. Just Okay, once. yes. Actually, could we just have, like, an entire, like, four-episode miniseries that's just, like, Aunt Zoya coming to the orphanage in, like, four different seasons or something? I would watch it. I'll reach out to my people with Netflix and I'll let you know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, Next time we talk to you guys... We will have seen this TV show and we will have all of the uh, feedback. Yep, we're very excited. And in the meantime, don't forget that we're right and we should say it. Hey there, we've picked our winners for the giveaway of the collector's edition of Shadow and Bone. We are so excited to announce that our winner on TikTok is at JennyBaby18. Woo! Our winner on Instagram is at Shaylin. We'll be DMing you guys to get your addresses so that we can send these out to you ASAP. Can't wait for you to get them. Yay. Thanks to everybody who participated. We got way more engagement than we were expecting, and we uh, really appreciate it. This was very fun. Pour yourself a glass of wine. Let's start reading in between the lines Never know what we might find Yeah, it could be magic Oh, 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 tinted Glasses Prose Tinted Glasses is hosted by Bailey Utrecht and me, Katie Phillips. Our logo is by Baby Truth Collection and our theme song is by Anna Boss. Congratulations to our giveaway winners. Be sure to follow us at ProStintedPod on pretty much whatever social media to see the next time we do a giveaway. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It will really help us grow the podcast. And we'll see you next time.